broadcasting live from the Ethan Hunt for Red October. This is Pop Culture Reference, your one-stop reference for all things pop culture. I'm one of your hosts, Seamus Connolly. And I am Gareth Strother. My goodness gracious, it's been a long time coming. Well, I guess more for you than me, Gareth, but we are finally covering Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, Part 1. We have so much to say, really, I feel like, to get into this. We, we had more to say last week in our Ethan Sprint of covering the entire franchise, but this is this is going to be a very exciting main segment, I think, today. We've got lots and lots to say. You might be wondering if we're going to be covering the ongoing SAG after strike as part of our news segment. We will, however, be waiting on that until our pop culture reference. So stick around for that segment. If you want to learn a little bit more about what's going on in the striking world, that being our only real piece of news, I think it's time to head right in to Dead Reckoning Part 1. I could not be more excited, man. Let's do it. For today's main segment, we're going to be talking about Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Seamus... I have been waiting for new Mission Impossible since 2018. Well, right off the bat, I'm just going to say, I don't think this movie is any Mission Impossible Fallout or anything. I had a really great time with Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. I think it was worth the wait. I thought it was awesome. I'm right there with you that, while it may not be the top of my list per se... I was blown away by so much about this movie, and I'm so excited to wait now with you. We were kind of saying that yesterday after we got out of the theater of, like, this is just one more in a long line of franchises that I will be... I will torture myself and be happily waiting for the next one because I know it's just going to blow everything else out of the water when it finally does come out. I'm very excited. I wish that I wasn't kind of because holy crap, this movie was such a banger. And as a part one, it really leaves so much open and so many questions left unanswered. And I know that's not necessarily, you know, Mission Impossible as a franchise doesn't necessarily answer every question that it poses every movie. But man, there's a lot of stuff I've been thinking about in the last 12 hours since we since we got into the theater. So I, I cannot wait to get into it with you. I'm going to declare this, I think, the king of the part ones that we... It's the year of part ones. It's really the summer of part ones. <laughs> because we've part got one Fast summer. X, we've got Across the yeah. Spider-Verse, we've got this. And I do think that this is the most satisfying of them. It maybe isn't the one that has me the most, like, I gotta see the next one right now. But... I think that Tom Cruise and Christopher Quarry in that way understand their audience. They're like, we want to leave you feeling like you just watched the whole movie, not the first half of a movie, which Fast X mm-hmm. definitely feels like the first half of a movie. And Spider-Verse, I think, does tell a complete story, but it, it overall is less satisfying than what's going on here. Yeah, definitely. Like you're saying, it was a complete movie. It wasn't just like... They wrote one super epic movie and they were like, it's too long. We got to split it up. And, you know, we kind of tie up the, the middle as an ending. They just gave us an entire film, a complete story, and then said, here's just a little bit of what we're getting into in the future here. It wasn't like a huge, massive cliffhanger. I thought that was a great way to do it. It's just a full movie and simple, pure excitement for this, the setup that they're going with for the next one. They're still taking care to make it feel like a finale. Like, they're 
kind of flirting with the hallmarks of a finale, the tone is very different. Something I noticed is that, well, Macquarie, one, continues to innovate the tone that he's working on, despite the fact that now he has done three Mission Impossible movies in a row, I feel like he clearly is trying to approach them from, this is going to be a different kind of film to keep in line with the different director every movie that the first half of the franchise had. And then on top of that, there is so much more Mission Impossible theme in this movie. The score is Lorne Balf. He's back for, I think, only his second Mission Impossible movie. I don't think he did five. But he obviously has a great score for Fallout and one of our recent favorites, Black Adam. He's there for, Ooh, yeah. he did the Top Gun Maverick score. So he's been really around lately. And he made this, as much as Fallout is an epic, this movie feels massive in scale and it's kind of hard to believe that they were able to go even bigger from fallout but i think they were successful it makes it feel like for the first time mission impossible is part of a mythos not just a really solid action franchise i feel like i'm kind of stuck in the middle of something i can't quite grasp because this franchise has, has been ebbing and flowing and evolving in different directions since the very first movie basically and we were talking last week about how we kind of have an early era that has a turning point at three and then we have the next three where fallout seems like such a opus of finally crossing a lot of these wires in a really satisfying way throughout so many of these movies and i feel like dead reckoning part one is it's like an even newer era that we're we're slipping into now i mean it's still like you're saying it's Still got all of the Mission Impossible-isms that make these movies what they are. But I feel like it's... The, whatever the next few movies are going to be, it's going gonna, it's gonna to feel like its own even more grandiose, contained kind of... You know, I, I kind of have been viewing these as trilogies of movies. You have your first three, your second three, and now we're on to beyond that right now. And it... it again, is feeling like it's going in directions that I can't even fathom. It's going to throw everything at me, and it's going to confuse and baffle me all the way down the line, kind of like how all these other ones have been doing as I've been catching up here. Let's just talk cast. Returning players, all as great as they've ever been. Tom Cruise, Simon Pegg, Ving Rhames, Rebecca Ferguson, and even some returning players who are not quite so uh, recognizable or constant, specifically... Uh, Henry Zerny and Vanessa Kirby also doing fantastic jobs. Totally. But I think, honestly, to me, and I don't know if you'll agree with this, but I think you will, the standouts of this movie are newcomers to the franchise, Palm Clementif and Haley Atwell. They're both so good. A lot of times in franchises that are this long running, you insert new characters with the old gang, and sometimes the vibe is kind of off. The chemistry feels a little strange as you're used to one thing over the other, but all the new people were fantastic, and I'm very much looking forward to playing around with those characters a little more in the universe. Other newcomers I enjoyed, of course, Shea Wiggum doing yeah. a great job, along with Coyote from Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> Degas. Yes. And, of course, Carrie Elwes. Yeah, oh, Carrie Elwes. You love to see him in anything, but this was such a huge idea to, to slip him into Mission Impossible stuff. And I, I do have thoughts about his role in this movie once we get farther into spoilers. But I 
I can't say too much more other than I very much enjoyed his presence. But I think there's so much to talk about. We can't really talk about anything in this movie, including the opening, without constituting spoilers. So let's go ahead and call it, I'll say, official spoiler warning for Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, and then also retroactively, of course, the rest of the Mission yeah, Impossible franchise. Every, everything else, for sure. Oh my goodness gracious, where do you want to start here? The main bad guy? Do you want to just jump right into the villain? Actually, yeah, because I've got a whole thing that I've been chewing on that ties in with the main villain. The entity is the AI that is going to take over the world and become its own global superpower, and everybody is vying for the literal key to harness the AI. So the U.S. wants it, and the British want it, and the mercenaries want it, and the AI wants to stay autonomous, which I think is a very interesting angle for this to go into. But what's been very interesting to me is how it ties in with the title, Dead Reckoning. You and I have been talking since they announced the title. What could that mean? I think you and I both assumed that, like a lot of Mission Impossible subtitles, it's more of a... Well, this is a pre-existing phrase that sounds cool. Dead, obviously, as the title of a spy movie, makes sense. And kind of like Fallout, you have this idea of reckoning. Like, so reckoning with your past, reckoning with the consequences of your actions, mm. etc. And then once we got into this movie and like 30 seconds in to this Hunt for Red October sequence where they literally do the... Um, <laughs> the fade to English The fade thing? to English. I thought that was awesome. I mean, they don't do it as well as Hunt for Red October. But the fact that the captain of the sub at the beginning says Dead Reckoning, I was like, oh, okay, so it sounds cool, and then they've also worked it into the plot, so now they have the justification for why it's called that. But then I kept thinking about that this morning, because we just saw it last night. Mm -hmm. Thinking about, like, what Dead Reckoning really means, and it's the perfect title. Dead Reckoning, you're, like, determining your current location based off of old data and trajectory, right? And the villain... Of this film, AI is taking old information and regurgitating it, and that's how it's making its decisions. So there's this margin for error that's inherent in dead reckoning as a naval practice, but then you also have the AI is maybe underestimating Ethan Hunt by just regurgitating things like, you know, Benji is stuck with a bomb. And Ethan is running to save his current brunette love interest's life across a really, really long shot. Much like in Mission Impossible 3, women that are important to him dying for him. And then, of course, the whole third act, which is a very direct, not even homage, I think, because it's explicit, like, hey, you guys remember Mission Impossible 1 where Kittredge is on the train and Ethan's on the train and there's masks on the train and, and Ma Max isn't here, but we do have Max's daughter here. So it's all kind of coming together. And that both is an in-universe reason to bring back those things and make it feel like a finale, but also show that this AI is making the very dangerous mistake of underestimating Ethan Hunt. I think that this AI is, in fact, making that very dangerous decision. And I would like to bring in Exhibit A of death in this movie, perhaps. Our dear friend, Ilsa, is 
Dunzo. Or is she, Garrett? Or is she? She was stabbed to death on a bridge in Venice by our our second lead villain, Gabriel, who is apparently part of some insanely mysterious and dark past that Ethan has before the IMF. Kind of a a bigger tease that they didn't go too far into in this part one, but... I think that the reckoning of the AI itself, the ultimate misstep that I think that we might be leading to throughout how we ended this movie and how I I believe the next one is going to play out more. I think that the data of like, oh, this AI knows that one of two people are going to be killed in this interaction. And depending on that, that is going to play directly into the hand of the AI. And that's going to drive Ethan to do exactly what the AI wants it to do. And it's going to drive Gabriel to make Ethan do exactly what he wants it to do. And it's going to be this whole string of like, well, my, my chess pieces are being played exactly how I want them to. But I think it's, the logic engine within it, whatever it actually is, is going to not be able to handle the idea of reintroducing that data into the algorithm. I think they're at least one or two steps ahead of the entity. I think they may have faked Ilsa's death to make the AI believe that everything is going to according to plan so that when they finally reveal that Ilsa and in my theory they're gonna fake kill Benji and they're gonna fake kill Luther and they're gonna bring Ethan to his knees quote unquote in front of this AI and then once they're all revealed like hey we've been ahead of the game this whole time the the algorithm the entity is not gonna be able to think as it does in the way that it's like oh well I've already planned everything as if Ethan's friends, the thing that drives him and supports him, they're already off the board. And so when they when they show back up again, I feel like that is going to be the reckoning, the dead reckoning, if you will. I know that's a lot to lay on you right now, and, and maybe that's just my own wishful thinking of like, how could they kill Ilsa like that? I don't want her to be gone, maybe. See, that's where I'm coming from, is I don't think that they can undo that that's too significant of a moment for them to undo for me. Ilsa is such a big part of this franchise, such a massive part of Ethan's character lately. That's something that we didn't really get to talk about last week when we were talking Fallout is how much of an equal she is to Ethan and kind of this weird, interesting counterpoint to Julia of she is the love interest that he doesn't have to protect. She is the love interest that can go with him to save the world. And the fact that Ethan has lost that is so monumental. I feel like it would just cheapen everything that happened in this movie if they were to undo that. You and I were discussing this a little bit yesterday. I think it's more likely that at some point when it's bargaining for its life with Ethan next movie... It's going to offer Ethan everything Ethan's ever wanted, and I think part of that is going to be, what if Ilsa could come back to you? What if I made you an Ilsa, a facsimile that talks like her and acts like her? I mean, hell, I th- I feel like we're not even too far away from the entire time yesterday, the entire runtime of the movie, I was like, 
this thing already controls the world. We get this great scene with Kittredge and the other like heads of the military of the United States being a, like a great cast of yeah, oh, Charles yes. Parnell, <laughs> Mark Gaddis, who is the creator of contemporary Sherlock and Doctor Who. I can't remember her name from Game of Thrones, but one of the Dornish people for Game of Thrones. The big one to me that really took me out of the movie was Rob Delaney was <laughs> one of the guys. Yeah, you're not wrong. It's a fun cast to all stick into a room and be like, no, Carrie Elways, the IMF is really important. And I know you don't know about that, but it is. Thought it was great. They walked a little bit up. I'm sorry, and I know you had a point that you were building to that I completely derailed. Pro- probably I did at some point, but please do go on. You were just talking about the great scene of them. And, and building up the IMF, and I think that they walk up a little bit too close to the fourth wall in that scene for me. Like, it was funny to have them be like, you leave word. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then an invincible man <laughs> fixes the problem that none of the other intelligence uh, agencies can fix. But it's true, though. It's true, damn it. I'm glad that other parts of this movie take the IMF seriously enough that it doesn't outweigh that. Ethan's entrance in this movie, again, it's no fallout. But him walking out of the shadows to the brand new IMF recruit delivering his his fake Uber Eats package. <laughs> yeah, I like that. It's good. It's a great, it's a great little moment. That was pretty chilling, I will say. Seeing Ethan Hunt just materialize from the darkness and just walking through new guy how to do the code phrases back and forth and the question is like what is the oath i think is his question yeah and he, we stay in the shadows to protect those closest to us and those we'll never meet and all that and i think that was also like a really a cool way to go all the way back to when they offer grace the choice towards the end of just like here are the sacred base rules of what the IMF is and like this is what the life entails and this has to be your mentality of selflessness and always putting somebody else above you and he's like I promise you I will be on that train to save you she's like you don't even know me Ethan Hunt we just met I am a thief I'm just trying to get paid and he's like it doesn't even matter I'm Ethan Hunt and this is what I do the job for is is you and everyone else who's going to get, you know, nuked and diseased and terrorist attacked and chemical weapons and all that stuff. Ethan Hunt is just there. He's a man of the people, Garrett. He is a man of the people. And when he says that he will put anyone else's life before his, he's shown that multiple times. He has died twice yeah. in this franchise. Honestly, I don't necessarily think that Dead Reckoning Part 2 will not have him die and somehow come back again. Like, he, he is he's so on the chopping block in any given moment. And I know Benji's always working on bombs, and people are always getting kidnapped and held at gunpoint slash bomb point or whatever, but he is willing to take that every single time. He He's upset when Benji and Luther keep the airport bomb from him, because he's like, well, what am I doing? I should be in the room with the nuclear bomb, or else, like, what What am I even doing? And that's the other great thing about this movie, is it has the most hijinks of any Mission Impossible. It's got a lot of hijinks. It really does. I know I said this many times to you yesterday, 
it has all the ingredients of a caper comedy. I think it is decidedly the funniest one, which is pretty crazy considering before that, I think Ghost Protocol had a pretty solid lead on being the funniest one. Oh, yeah. There's a good 30-minute period of this movie that's just like, what if we did a silly car chase around Rome and we made a bunch of jokes? And it was Yo, like, that car chase is so good, though. It's a 30 screwball comedy for a lot of this movie, including the, I loved it as much as I thought it was funny, but the idea of Luther having to be the man in the chair for both Agent Ethan and, and Agent, Agent Benji. Benji. Yes, dude, I thought that was so good. They're, he's trying to talk them both through things, and damn it if Phineas Freak doesn't do a great job <laughs> doing all of that. He's so good, and that's why I believe it so much when coming up on the third act and he's like, listen... I, Luther Stickle, am the only person who's going to be able to crack this insane AI code that's, like, stuck in this hard drive from my smashed-up computer. I'm going to go sit in a lead bunker somewhere and figure this out manually because I'm Luther Stickle and I'm a damn genius. And maybe that plays a little bit more into my... There may or may not be more fake dead people that Luther is rendezvousing with outside of the watchful gaze of the entity in some way shape or form but i could also just fully believe like luther is maybe the smartest analyst in the imf and he's just gonna go do the thing that the smartest analyst in the imf can do it wasn't as little luther as we get in like ghost protocol <laughs> well yeah but it still leaves us, like, wanting more Luther, which I always am, but they, they give us that little, that third act of Benji's gotta take the wheel a little bit more. Well, I guess not take the wheel. He lets the self-driving BMW do that for a while. But I like that the setup of Luther is the promise of more Luther in this story specifically. He's not just going off to do his own thing again like he sometimes does. I'm very glad that he made it through another movie, man, because... Ooh, when they when they started giving him more to do, I was like, "Don't give him more to do because that means you're gonna kill him." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude, that you whispered that to me, and I was like, "Oh no, you're right. You're so right. <laughs> Luther's gonna be defusing a bomb somewhere to get destroyed." But no, save for another time. That was also my my thoughts about Benji. Was just like they make him more and more capable every movie, and more and more of a like a hardened field agent. And this was the one where I was like, "There's no way he gets out of this alive." I thought he was dead in Venice, like for sure. I thought he was dead in Venice, and I thought he was for sure dead when the entity started copying his voice and doing like the "There's no way you can save them, Ethan" speech mm -hmm. in Benji voice. And I was like, "Oh, dude, this is too dark. Benji's done for, but he's okay just for now." Everything. Except for Ilsa, I guess. Everything is okay just for now, kinda. I'm movie... mostly interested about what the deal... Like, how is Grace gonna start the next movie is my biggest thing. Because it could straight up be like... Kittredge could straight up just be like, you're helping Ethan Hunt, who's gone rogue again or whatever, and we're gonna, like, put you in IMF prison because you're an accessory to Ethan now having absconded with the two keys, the cross keys. And you know and who's gonna come see her in prison, Shamus? Who's going to come see her in prison? William Brandt. Oh my god. I mean, I would love that, if I'm being honest. They need to bring him back. I really do feel like Jeremy Renner is... I, I At this point, he's not been in a couple of them, so I can't put him up with, like, Benji. But, but I want to. I want to do that. He's, he's, he's on the great team. in those movies. He's he on is the on team. the team. 
Am I crazy for thinking that he would he, he was going to be in this one? I really did think he was going to be in this one. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't in any of the trailers, but I was kind of like, yeah, he's going to he's going to show up. I was kind of thinking that like a certain other movie that we have seen this summer and talked about on the podcast, <laughs> there would be a moment at the end, oh, we're going to need all the help we can get. Ah, uh, yeah. Kittredge pulls off the mask. It's been Jeremy Renner the oh, whole time. That would be pretty great. Dude, a secret a secret triple mask reveal of, of Kittredge. I mean, he was great in this movie for real. I loved the, all the stuff they did on the train, like you were saying before, with Kittredge too, but also specifically like the, I haven't seen you, White Widow, since you were a little girl in Paris or whatever. And that was like a whole extra like oh yeah, I guess this is a lot of legacy stuff coming together right now, and it would make sense that they have some sort of strange relationship where they would have known each other at some point. Well, the last time that we saw Kittredge, he was saying to Max, let's figure a way to keep the courts out of this. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, and that, I mean, it's it's pretty awesome that there has been, like, a secret liaison between the IMF and the White Widow's whole operation out there this entire time, apparently. Even though Kittredge is now the director of the CIA after Angela Bassett has seemingly become the president right. of the United States. Why didn't they mention that at all? That was, like, a background picture of her in, like, the Oval Office in front of, like, the presidential seal or whatever. Mm -hmm. So strange that they didn't get into that more, but... There's a lot of things they didn't get into in the depth of, and I mean that Ethan's past with Gabriel. Uh, it's Ilsa's really crazy. Past with Gabriel, like there's a lot of crazy stuff that they just were just like, oh yeah, this huge dramatic reveal, and then just fully are like, yeah, I bet you wish you could know about that. I think my biggest criticism of this movie is that I do wish they'd given us a little bit more because we see pretty early, really early, the flashback where. Gabriel kills a woman who's close to Ethan, and Ethan finds her and is clearly framed for the murder. I really hoped that by the end of the movie, we would have a little bit more insight either to who that woman was or why she was killed. It, yes, exactly. I, I would have been very, very happy with that, because now I'm just like, they could just string us along for however many more movies now. Now that they have revealed that this two-part Dead Reckoning deal is not the ending at all, and that... I don't know, we could get a young Ethan prequel movie about pre-IMF if they well, wanted to. Actually, from the reading I've done, it sounds like they were originally going to maybe do de-aging for a more oh. in-depth flashback. And he was like, he feels like any time he sees de-aging in a movie, it takes him out of the story. And he's mm. just like, wow, look at the actor who I've known as older for so many years is now young again. And... He felt like it would be too distracting for audiences to see 90s Tom Cruise again. And yeah. I think he was right. I think that was a good call. I think that's totally fair. but Because Tom Cruise still looks very good in this movie, but it would have really highlighted just how, even if you know incremental, just how much older he looks than the beginning of this franchise. And he's still young. He's still doing young guy stuff in this movie, at least. I also do love that the flashback establishes that even before he was in the IMF, his hair length fluctuated constantly. Yeah. Like, he's back to Mission Impossible <laughs> hair in the flashbacks. That's what I'm saying. It's like, he had to get a buzz cut to be in the IMF at some point. 
Or I guess when he goes to prison, which was like a crazy thing that they also revealed that, like you were saying, he's like framed probably for this murder and is in prison before they gave him the choice that he accepted right out of prison. But then once he's on vacation, once he takes some time off in Mission Impossible 2, he goes right back to that long hair. It also explains some things about like Benji, it's always seemed like has like a kind of funky past, which is now making a little bit more sense. And, you know, Luther kind of enjoyed being disreputable. I don't know if you know that, but... I do! Ah, oh, dude, I love... I love Disreputable Luther, because he's so classy, that, that Luther stickle. But, I don't know, young, reckless Luther from the from the OJ movies? It's, it's something else. Someday, I will get my hands on a PDF of that Mission Impossible comic where they go into how Luther got disavowed... That I'm sure what? isn't quote unquote canon or anything. There was a but like come on. There was a there was a Marvel comic, a Marvel one shot as part of the marketing for the first Mission Impossible movie that was kind of backstories for Ethan and I wanna say that John Voigt's character was mm. featured and then but you also saw Luther getting disavowed that was part of that comic. That's awesome. That that was for the first movie, too? Yeah. That's, like, way cooler than what I thought they would be doing for the first movie in a franchise. Or, I, I don't know if they were really trying to franchise at that point. Well, but I mean, they have a pretty explicit, hey, your mission, should you uh, choose to accept it at the end there of... That is true. That is true. But talking about setting up the next movie, they've done that a few times throughout the course of Mission Impossible, where the end of the first movie, he's getting another mission... The end of Ghost Protocol, he learns about the Syndicate. Yeah, the we talked last week about the your missions, choose to accept them, dropping yeah. the phones in front of everybody. But I think it was a cool subversion. The way that they teased this, again, like you mentioned in non-spoilers, in lieu of doing like a post credit scene or a more explicit cliffhanger where, oh man, how are they going to get out of this one? They just show you how impossible because we know the trajectory of the story we know what ethan has to do now he has to go to the submarine and confront the ai well he has to go to the submarine to get the code and then somehow in my mind there is a layer that he will have to find and go to where it's like the main server of the entity that he's gonna have to figure out but the bottom of the ocean is just step one of the impossible mission which is which is in it itself just awesome that they're they're starting with the impossible and then saying, but once we get to that movie, there's going to be 10 times the impossible mission that he has to fulfill, even after going to the bottom of the actual ocean. I've seen a lot of people kind of complaining about the opening to this movie. Well, we already know what the key is for. We already know where it came from. We already know all of these things. So we're ahead of the characters the whole time. And I'm like, one, Mission Impossible has never been about keeping the plot from you, really. Other than, I guess, kind of the rabbit's foot. I was going to say, but even the rabbit's foot is done in, like, an awesome, very cool way where they set up that intro with, like, that's not the rabbit's foot. Tell me where the rabbit's foot yeah. is. Something like Fallout, right? It's not a secret that Henry Cavill is a bad guy. For all of Fallout, pretty much, you're like, yeah, this guy is going to have it <laughs> you, out. At you some get point. those vibes. So, in this movie. I do not see them front-loading the convolution of the plot on us as a bad thing. Especially because I would argue this movie has enough twists and turns already without having mm. to have us follow. Okay, there's a missing submarine that the key has to, you know, like, we get all that at the beginning. We're good to go. We know the mechanics of it. And now 
we get to play caper comedy with the IMF and the inept CIA agents that are chasing Ethan Hunt. Oh, and dude, they're so good. I do love them. I mean, Shea Wiggum, obviously, kind of the same role that he has in the Fast and the Furious franchise. I was thinking about that. I was thinking about a lot about that, too. And I, I, I think, you know, he's got it. He's got it down pat i don't mind it at all really he's a little more he's a little more on the ball in this one because he is like pretty competent in terms of u.s marshall style tommy lee jones chasing a man down over the world but he's also just like another like i've been chasing you this whole time ethan hunt and then ethan's like let me save your life on top of this train real quick (laughs) and then you're gonna know that i'm you know, I'm the good guy here. I don't like you, but you. I respect you, Ethan Hunt. I'm exactly. Get killed by whoever. He's he's you know he's talking back to Kittredge like you're not you're not here, sir. So it shouldn't concern you. Everybody to the back of the train. We're doing a train sequence real quick. It, <laughs> it was real good. One I feel like I have to mention also Shea Wiggum great as Captain Stacy in Across the Spider Verse also this summer. So he's, he's oh hitting yeah, it. he's hitting it right now. He really is. He's going off. But they tease us with a little, do you know Hunt, not personally, but it is personal oh, man. tease. So I'm very curious about what we're going to learn about Shea Wiggum's past and how Ethan has, you know, did he get stuck doing cleanup on the bottom of the San Francisco Bay with Luther after Ghost Protocol Ooh, or yeah, something weird that like that? His current wife is Naya from Mission Impossible 2, and he's like, Ethan Hunt treated my wife bad. (laughs) He abandoned my wife between movies. (laughs) We have not talked about how both scary Palm Clementif is, but then also shocked to learn she has a little redemption arc going on. Yeah, that that actually very much did shock me. Because then once we got to that redemption arc, I was like, oh, she's going to be part of the team. She's going to be kind of the man on the inside for our guys now, but nope, she is dead. She's fully dead, (laughs) stabbed to death. I also saw somewhere that I guess Leonard Nimoy's name on the old Mission Impossible show was Paris, so now you've got a new character called Paris. I thought that was interesting. That Um, is cool. She was a great addition to this movie. She is, would you say, the best henchman in all of these? I was kind of thinking that, like, for real. She, she's she got such personality, even though she really doesn't get to say a word until they're on the on the Orient Express. I don't even know if we mentioned that the train is the Orient Express. That's so goofy. But she doesn't really get to do, she doesn't really get to say anything, but everything else of just, like, her giddiness in that Rome chase and her competence in, like, hand-to-hand combat... I thought, I thought she had such personality as a henchman, and I'm sad to see her go so early. You know, I love the Bone Doctor. I love... Of um, course. I love Jean Reno's character from the first Mission Impossible, but she has an almost, like, Bond-like quality, where she's a, she's a henchman of few words, and she is uber competent and has a weird... Like, I love when she's in the, like, Harlequin makeup. Yeah, I think that's at funky. At- the weird Italian sex party club. I thought she, <laughs> she's like, I'm going to get club dressed up for this one. Everyone else is like dressed normal. <laughs> when she's still in that, in the tiny little alleyway, when she's still in that outfit, oh, she's man. dragging her pipe along the cinder block. Dude, that micro alleyway Venice fight was awesome. I brutal as hell watching Ethan Hunt slam her head against however many brick edges. Uh-huh. Dope. So brutal, so badass. 
you really feel like Ethan Hunt is getting overwhelmed for a minute there before he is like, wait a minute, I'm Ethan Hunt. I can just walk out of this one, you know? Well, that was the thought I had during this movie. There's a scene where he and Ilsa, I think it's around that same sequence, are just wailing on some guys. And Mission Impossible has never been about hand-to-hand combat, really. It's all about, like, feats of amazing athleticism, sure. But very rarely is Ethan Hunt just straight up punching a guy in the face. Yeah, for sure. I think... Ambrose says it in Mission Impossible 2. He's like, he'll do everything. To, he'll do. He'll put on every mask. He'll do the most insane infiltration of the building. He'll come in from the roof because he's a psychopath just so he won't have to fight anybody directly, more or less. Yeah, I think that's very true to that character. So it makes sense a little bit that Ethan Hunt feels out of his... Like, in Rogue mm. Nation and Fallout, I think are both prime examples of... Just somebody who is way outmatched to Ethan Hunt in terms of their hand-to-hand physicality. Yeah. It's interesting to see him feel overwhelmed. I think this movie is the closest tonally that the franchise has ever come to Indiana Jones. I think I can agree with that. It's it's very it's very globetrotty, of course. I mean, I guess all of them are, but now we're even going into like multiple cities in Italy. We're going to Venice and Rome and in Ghost Protocol, he's like feverishly like, no, I am going to climb on the outside of this building. But in this one, Benji's like, you got to ride off the cliff, buddy. And he's like, that's that's sh- shut up, Benji. Like, this is not what I came up this mountain to do. I came up this mountain to ride down it. And then, you know, he still has to in true Indiana Jones vibes, like make it up as he goes along, launch himself off of a mountain and parachute into the side of the Orient Express. That has become one of the staples of the franchise at this point, I think, is Benji just being like, well, you can just do that. So do it. So, well, you can just go in from the outside. You can just hold your breath for five minutes. You can just jump out the window to continue chasing Henry Cavill across the Thames. Honestly, this one, their phone call argument on the top of that mountain in Dead Reckoning Part 1, it was such a bizarre thing to see the hesitation, because with as much avoidance as I could with the trailers of this movie, which hasn't been a lot, because we've been going to see this trailer in the movies a lot, but, like, all the marketing of, like, Tom Cruise is, like, coordinating and executing this stunt off of this mountain and he wants everybody to know how happy he is to launch himself headfirst off of the top of a Austrian mountain. And it, and in this scene he's just like I'm I don't want to do that Benji. It's impossible. It's at a weird angle. There's rocks jutting out from this thing. Like I I know I do a lot, but I don't want to do this and then he just does it anyway. It's so good. It it was weird to see that hesitation knowing how much Tom Cruise actually wanted to do every second of that stunt i do feel like seeing the stunt was i mean it was great to see it in imax and obviously it's a little bit more time in the actual movie but compared to something like the plane sequence from rogue nation where in the trailers you saw like a couple seconds of that but then in the movie it's a full like 30 second shot of the plane taking off and him clinging to it as opposed to this i felt like again a little underwhelming because pretty much what we saw in the trailers is what was in the movie. Sure, we don't have all of the narrative momentum behind it, but I have now seen that trailer in IMAX, like you said, <laughs> the five times. So, like, when we saw the special preview in front of Avatar 2, colon, The Way of Water, all, all that time ago, 
And that was maybe the most impressed I think we were ever of this stunt. Because it really is crazy to see. But Well, I remember we, when we, we get to see Top Gun a year ago, over a year ago now. And you closed your eyes for this trailer. Oh, yes. And the first time I saw it, him going off that cliff, just grabbing you and being like, <laughs> I can't even tell oh, you what I just what, saw. That is what that was. I don't even know if we ever discussed what the arm grab was until now that we're finally on the other side of this movie. That is that is fascinating that that was even in the first trailer. That great trailer that goes bum, 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 bum. Over and over and over again. That was the first trailer for this no movie. No kidding. I, I'm sure I went back and I saw that first trailer after we finally caught up with me with the rest of the old ones. But man, oh man. Now, if anything, I'm the most excited for when we finally get a Dead Reckoning Part 2 trailer at the very least. I'm so excited. God, I'm so excited. Well, it'll be really interesting to see. There's so many different characters that I am curious about where they end up in part two. Because, like we said, like at the end of this movie, Ethan's got the key. He seems to be in pretty good shape. He knows where he has to go. He doesn't know how to get there, necessarily. But the White Widow is gonna not be happy about getting impersonated during the train heist. We have no yeah. idea what is up with Grace and Kittredge. I do think that there is a very real possibility that we see a lot of other previous team members, again, like Jeremy Renner, come back into the fold for this big finale. Mm-hmm. So the only people who we really know what they're up to are Benji and Ethan. So many unanswered questions. And now my theories are shifting a lot to like, who could get Ethan Hunt a submarine? The White Widow could probably get Ethan Hunt a submarine. But the White Widow's going to be angry at Ethan Hunt. He's going to have to, like, level with her and finally reveal his true identity. I love the callbacks to, like, her still calling him John Lark, even though she's, yep. like, kind of wise about, you know, that's not really what's going on here. They still have a flirty thing going on. But she's going to be, like, you know, arms dealer, warlord style relationship with him now that she's going to probably be aware of what the hell happened. So I'm 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 hoping she gets brought into the fold of again, I don't know if Kittredge is going to be he was a lot more a re- of a receptive of an antagonist in this than I thought he yeah. was going to be. I thought he was going to be more like his role in the first one, which honestly that's kind of the Shea Wiggum role in this. Yeah, like Kittredge has gone further him. down the rabbit hole. And I know we also never really locked down what the hell role Carrie Elway's was playing in the government I've at got the time. No idea. But his throat is slashed now. He is dead as hell, which is very sad. Uh, I wish he got to stick around and do more. He got a great little monologue at the end there. Yes, he did about you know his own little brand of world dominance and his his place in the in the throne there. But I don't know. Kittredge is probably gonna blame Ethan for his death in some way or another yeah. at this point. So. I'm interested to see what he's going to do with Grace, what he's going to do with his probably, again, disavowing of Ethan and his team after all the stuff that happened with the train and his taking the keys. I'm very lost in my thoughts right now with how things are going to go, but I am feeling the Jeremy Renner on the horizon. I feel like he is the key to all of this, you know, bring in... Like last week, I still want them to bring back the Australian helicopter pilot from 2, you know? I want them to bring back What's-Her-Name from 3 and What's-Her-Name from <laughs> Ghost Protocol. I, I think it's going to be a big team-up, and everybody's got to go to the bottom of the ocean. My number one hope is that Solomon Lane is in the next one. 
we had a lot of good Solomon Lane theories at, at the end of yesterday's screen. <laughs> a lot of good Solomon Lane impressions of like why his Joker style terrorist ass is gonna not jive with the entity and the entity's form and end goals and how one one else so different, Ethan. We have to go to the layer together. What if Solomon Lane has to be the real showdown guy with the entity and be like, this is why I'm a better world dominance guy than you are, you computer, and I'm going to finally... Solomon Lane has been trying to, like, die in the line (laughs) of duty for his cause for so many movies straight now. I think... Him and Ethan are going to get to come together and be like, listen, I'm going to go out in a blaze of glory. I'm going to go out in a blaze of glory, Ethan Hunt. I'm going a little too Beatles now. I had a, I was really locked in yesterday, but because now it's... Because it's Ethan... Oh, Ethan, this is, the, this is the consequences of all your good intentions, Ethan. Oh, a yellow submarine, you say, Ethan. Oh... <laughs> <laughs> that's too dumb. That's too dumb. I'm sorry that I got to that point. I mean, but, but like the the yellow summary, that's pretty funny. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I think he's coming in hot. I think maybe even the entity is gonna try to appeal to him. It's going to need to pull out all the stops to to get to Ethan because the entity now knows that Ethan can beat it, so it's going to be even more scared than it was of him before, ah. which it clearly already was when Ethan Hunt is like, I'm gonna. I'm gonna hunt you down and kill you and your god. Oh, and... One of the most badass things Ethan Hunt has ever said, ever. Truly. Even more than that, though, I feel like the entity is gonna need to pull out all the stops, but the entity is also gonna need a new henchman after it throws Gabriel into the trash because it failed the entity. And he's gonna be like, well, what's the most deranged thing? What's, like, next in line to propel Ethan Hunt in my plot? And that's Solomon Lane. The entity is going to break Solomon Lane out of his, like, Magneto prison that they're holding him (laughs) in somewhere. And his beard is going to be even longer this time. Solomon Lane is going to betray the entity with all of our theories of, like, true human suffering, true human suffering, Ethan. This is not what it is. Nobody should have this. I'm the master of terrorism. Because that is Lane's whole thing is all of the different countries of the world have too much power and they need to be taken down a notch. That is a big part of his whole thesis. So I think I think we're not too far off that Solomon Lane is going to be the Hannibal Lecter in the field in Dead Reckoning Part 2, I feel like. Right now, I'm very happy with where Part 1 has left us. It was satisfying. It was exciting. All of the... I feel like we haven't even talked enough action because the whole train dominoing and every car is a new... Awesome obstacle to climb up with the wily coyote piano falling on Ethan <laughs> yeah. Hunt. They've got to get through the kitchen car with the flames going out and they got to get through the dining car where like the gravity is shifting because of how the train is falling. Like it's it's truly awesome. I mean we didn't we didn't even talk about the airport scene, which I think is some of the most paranoid tension that we've gotten in these movies since like the early days where you know the AI is messing with the alternate reality glasses that Ethan Hunt is using to track people and that's when Wiggum is like introduced as like this true force of hunting down Ethan and 
You've got I, the bomb. But that's also when he's like, where is this guy? Where is this guy? And, and the, in the background is Ethan Hunt full force yes, sprinting yes. across the roof of the airport. Oh, some great sprinting in that airport. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to, to dive in here. I feel like I'm, I'm going to be very happy to get the Dead Reckoning Part 1 and Part 2, like, 4K double pack whenever that happens. I, I, I'm so excited to see how they come to fruition with all of this extra stuff. Is is Shea Wiggum? Is he gonna be? Is he gonna get the choice at some point? I feel like Degas, his partner, is gonna get absolutely killed by the algorithm, and that's gonna drive him even farther. I don't know. I I want to know so much more about what's gonna happen with him and his personal connections. That's something I don't mind waiting till part two for. The only thing that I really wish we'd been given is a little bit more about Gabriel and Ethan, and also, frankly. When we first saw the woman in the flashback, I thought, is that going to be young Haley Atwell was one of my first thoughts, even though Haley Atwell is obviously not as old as Tom Cruise. All the Gabriel stuff is so up in the air. It's got me very interested. We didn't even, we, I would love to briefly mention that he has like a coffin, an AI coffin where he wears a mask that's like downloading stuff into his brain, maybe. I don't know how that's going to work, I, but my God, it is it is so tantalizing that we know none of the answers about Gabriel and his situation. You know what we do know is that Tom Cruise is handcuffed to a... The handcuff to the steering wheel was not... You and I were kind of guessing about how that was going to work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the posters and, and the trailers were like, why is he handcuffed? Did not disappoint. I'll say, it I'll didn't. Say that. It was great. Great bits before they get into the car while they're in the car, and after he has to rip the steering wheel off of the car and walk around with it still handcuffed to his wrist, I thought it was all great. Anything else about... I'm, I'm shocked that we're kind of, like, ready to wrap it up, but anything I mean, else? I mean, it feels like there's so much... Uh, Benji drives a boat again, thank God, twice, actually. I, I suspect that the one where the gang is all in the boat, and then also the balcony scene with ilsa and ethan in what is that in rome or is that in venice that one's in rome i believe i think both of those were reshoots based on the fact that they're like short scenes with no dialogue and i feel like tom cruise looks slightly older in them (laughs) than others i feel like they were like okay we need to establish the team more before we kill ilsa and i i think those were correct decisions yeah, I, I think those were those were great. Plus, I mean, we we are now we are now all on the everybody in a boat shot is mandatory train. So I I can't wait till the next one to see what city they go into with a river. Ethan, I'm in an underwater prison. You have to break <laughs> me out with a boat. Ethan, I'm answering for my crimes in Chicago. We need to drive down the Chicago River in a in a tour boat, Ethan. Ooh, that's just a weird boat tour. That's very interesting. Oh, you're commandeering a water taxi. Fascinating, Ethan. Mm-hmm. But will you climb up the top of the Sears Tower? I know it's not as tall as the other one that you climbed, but why are you scaling the outside of the bean like it's the Burj Khalifa, Ethan? There's nothing up there. <laughs> Um, <laughs> this is just our wish list of Ethan Hunt <laughs> takes Chicago, basically. Well, I was trying to think about, like, what the ideal... I think Ethan safety lasting on the hands of the Wrigley Building clock tower would Ooh, be that's pretty ideal. good. Um, he's got bra- to break into the Field Museum for some reason, and he ends up on the back of Sue's bones. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to go crazier. 
I do want to mention that I feel like the the train wreck is a direct reference also to speaking of silent movies, Buster Keaton's The General, where they famously wrecked an entire steam locomotive by blowing up a bridge. <laughs> For real. For the, real. One of the ultimate OG like film history real life stunts like crazy expensive kind of groundbreaking for its time yeah that is that i think that is for a reason for sure well join us in 15 years when they finally oh come out my with dead God. reckoning part two and 80 year old tom cruise <laughs> is going to the bottom of the ocean oh my god it is just gonna like be just like bizarre. indiana jones i guess um just like indiana jones i honestly the the pressure of being that far to the ocean is gonna make him look younger his face is gonna be like pressed back from the ocean pressure and it, like a botox exactly exactly or like a um, facelift i guess really is more what that is yeah it's like a facelift speaking of why this second movie is gonna take a bajillion years to come out do you want to kick it on over to our reference this week let's do it For today's pop culture reference, we are going to be talking about the SAG after a strike. On Friday, July 14th, 2023, members of SAG AFTRA, or the Screen Actors Guild and the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, officially went on strike after collective bargaining between the union and the Association of Motion Picture and Television Producers was unsuccessful. This is the first time that SAG AFTRA has gone on strike since 1980. During the strike, SAG-AFTRA members cannot act in movies or television, attend award shows, or do press such as interviews, social media promotion, and film festivals. As previously covered in a pop culture reference segment in episode 127, on May 2nd, 2023, the Writers Guild of America went on strike over the failure of their negotiating terms to be met by the AMPTP. The SAG-AFTRA negotiations focused on many of the same issues that the WGA have gone on strike over, including increased wages, residual policies for streaming media, and the use of AI technology to replace or exploit production roles in film and television. Hollywood actors and writers have not been on strike simultaneously since 1960, when Ronald Reagan was the president of SAG. The media landscape today is almost unrecognizable compared to the Hollywood of strikes past, and the coming months will mark an unprecedented period in the realm of American film and television. Terms suggested by the AMPTP before the strike included proposals like being able to scan extras' faces during a single day of work, then studios using their likeness in perpetuity with no royalties or consent exchanged with the original actor. SAG-AFTRA President Fran Drescher says that while the union viewed the extension of negotiations as an opportunity to prevent a strike, major studios were simply using the delay to sneak in a few larger film premieres, such as Oppenheimer, Barbie, and Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. And with this strike on right now, Seamus, I feel like we are looking at, this is as big a disruption to the film and television world, I would say, as COVID was. This is going to, I would argue that this might even be, I mean, I guess it just happened so recently. I just feel like this is going to be like, Hollywood is going to be in a crater by the end of this. It's going to take, like, decades to get things back in working order, you know? Things like like massive blockbusters like Dead Reckoning Part 2 were already, like, the production was shelved weeks and weeks ago with all of the WGA strike stuff, but now it's just, it's everything that has not been fully polished and finished is basically dead in the water for the foreseeable future, which is just 
the craziest thing to think about with these big of projects. It'll be very interesting to see how it continues to evolve. I mean, if the writer's strike has been going since May, I don't see any reason to believe that this is going to get resolved any more easily. So studios have been making some very uh, interesting remarks lately. Bob Iger <laughs> has said some really terrible things, specifically about Bob Iger, no, get out of here. I know, I know. And then, <laughs> you know, somebody, and it's been made clear by the studios that it's essentially their position that they're waiting for writers to go bankrupt before they settle on negotiating terms. Insane. So. It's, so, it's such a poor faith thing to do in a negotiation like this, but SAG and WGA together, if there are, you know, even more unions that are going to be joining something like this, it might just be finally the breaking point of greedy Hollywood executives where they have to make more concessions if they want to make movies that people will see. But... Even looking at something like the Oppenheimer premiere walkout of the whole cast leaving the red carpet together after the strike was announced, I, I think that if, if there is any solidarity in the working people of these unions that are kind of trying to band together here, I at least have a little bit more hope for the end game of their benefit. Even if, you know, maybe it's not going to be everything that could be with the authorization that these studios will give them it'll be something in the positive direction for the future you know laying the base work for less exploitative production means but with that what do you say we wrap it up and we go save the rec center i'm gonna sprint full force across the roof of the airport <laughs> real quick just to get to the rec center bum, 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 bum. save the rec center Now it's time to save the rec center, where we bring you our weekly recommendations. Seamus, what do you have for us this week? Well, Garrett, I would never recommend a Netflix thing to you for many reasons, unless it's a pretty damn good docuseries. I just watched all three episodes of Trainwreck, Woodstock 99, which is a Netflix original docuseries about the crumbling, the famous crumbling of Woodstock 99. It's got a lot of really insightful interviews with, like, the people who ran it and, the, the like, truly the heads of Woodstock who are, to this day, delusional about why it failed. It's just, it's really fascinating to see those kinds of interviews coupled with current day interviews of attendees who, you know, still remember all the horrible, disgusting sewage overflowing details of what that festival was back in 99. It's so much more horrific than I ever knew. I mean, like, I had known that that music festival was an absolute disaster and that there was, you know, something about a candle vigil that eventually turned into the entire, like, pavilion being burned to the ground. But it's a lot of really interesting insight to the social culture of music and the overflowing angst and anger of what late teens early 20s white males were thinking in 1999 you know in the advent of such american classic hits as regular school shootings and you know things like that <laughs> like what like really the headspace that so many of these people were in and how that culminates in this documentary i i genuinely highly recommend it i like i said 
don't really recommend most Netflix things, but they've got their documentary team on lock, and this is a really good example of what they're doing these days. Well, that sounds really interesting, and I'd I'd like to check that out, Seamus. Three three easily digestible episodes. It's not super long winded, and like I said, it watching these old out of touch maniacs just be like, the guys from Corn were really responsible for the, these riots, and it's like, what what is happening? <laughs> what is this about? Totally. So highly recommended. But what do you have for me to save the rec center? Well, I've already personally rec centered it to you, Seamus. But I feel like. With Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning out in cinemas now, which is very much Mission Impossible's answer to the caper comedy and the screwball comedy, I have to recommend one of my very favorites from the 1970s, Peter Bogdanovich's What's Up, Doc. There is a sequence in Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning that I feel like is directly influenced by What's Up, Doc. has a great cast, including Ryan O'Neill, Barbara Streisand, and Madeline Kahn. But the real standout to me is Austin Pendleton, who gives one of my favorite comedic performances ever in What's Up, Doc. I think it's only currently streaming right now on the Criterion channel, but you can on occasion catch it on other streaming services and, of course, Turner Classic Movies. So keep an eye out for that because it is well worth a watch. Yeah, you were you were explaining a little bit about that movie to me after we got out of the theater yesterday, and that has been super high on my watch list now. That cast is fabulous and you know you don't really see a screwball comedy ever anymore it's it, it unless you're going to see dead reckoning part one so i i definitely need to go back and hit those classics because i i know it's going to be a lot more rare as it has been moving forward but i think that wraps us up for this week's episode of pop culture reference if you want to reach the show you can find us on social media at pcr underscore podcast on tiktok twitter and instagram Email us at popculturereferencepod at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on YouTube and other social media platforms. Basically, anything that you can do to engage with the show, it really helps us out. Next week, we are joining the masses and covering Barbie and Oppenheimer. Barbie Heimer is coming to a pop culture reference podcast near you. Very excited to watch the most tonally dissonant double feature of all time. And I very, very much look forward to trying to cram five full hours worth of new movies into one episode with you next week. Well, we'll see. We'll You and I have a few different ideas on how we might adjust our, uh, our traditional format to cover both of those in one outing. And I'm very excited to see what we land on when we see you all next week. Adios, amigos. Adios, amigos.